Good morning, church. Romans 1, Joe scared me a little bit when he said Romans 8 a minute ago. Our text today, as we've been looking through the book of Romans, and it kind of takes a little bit of a transition, a different direction today, uh, as it continues the idea that we looked at the last uh, couple of weeks about faith um, and about the gospel and how that's accessible to us by faith and through faith. Um, and my, my goal is, as we uh, finish today, um, as we were just singing that, that song right before, um, right before we uh, concluded that time, um, those words, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need thee. I hope that's where... We end up today seeing desperately just how much we really do need the Lord. We do need Christ. We do need the gospel. We do need this incredible work that he has done for us. So again, just before we jump into verse 18, kind of kind of ramping back up with that context to see where we've been at the, the past couple of weeks in verses 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God to save those who come to him by faith. The gospel is the power of God to save those who come to him by faith. That's what verse 16 says, the gospel, the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of God to save those who believe, everyone who believes. The gospel, this incredible work of Christ, the, the good news as it is, which is just what the word means, is the power of God and it brings salvation to anyone who will come and just put their faith and trust in Christ. We simply trust in Christ and what He has done, and the power of God transforms us, makes us new, makes us free, makes us completely free in Him. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel by faith, but an important point of that too is that the gospel is the pride of those who are being saved. I loved what Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is not something that I'm looking to hide or suppress. Hang on to that idea. It's not something that I'm, I, I want to kind of shrink back from or be, be ashamed of. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not hiding it. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not suppressing it. I'm not concealing it because I know who he is and what he's done. And I'm proud to know him. It's Galatians 6.14, far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of Christ Jesus, my Lord, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm going to boast in one thing, Paul says. There's one thing that I am incredibly proud of. It's not in me and what I've accomplished. It's not in my history and my background or what family I come from, anything like that. I'm incredibly proud to know Jesus. And I'm incredibly proud for what he's done in me. I believe, and I'm proud to stand on it, Paul says. But there, there's a contrast to this. And so we see this incredible gospel, this incredible gospel that is God's power to save for those who believe. But what about for those who don't believe? And maybe even as we see in this text, even go a step further than that. There's a contrast to this good news. And that's where we come in, in, in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, where it starts 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The bad news. The bad news is what we begin to see here. And I want to to walk simply through the text this morning and show you what this contrast looks like and why it's incredibly relevant for us today. Incredibly relevant for us. And I, I want to do that. I just kind of made a simple little outline to follow along here. And, and it's just what we see about God, what we see about man, and then some of the outworkings of that. So what do we see about God? Paul zooms in on, the as- on an aspect of the God's character that we don't often acknowledge a lot or we don't often talk about or we don't often think about because we really don't want to. It's not one of those comfortable topics, the wrath of God. You know, let's spend some time talking about the wrath of God. Does that sound fun? No, it doesn't. It's His wrath. A lot of times we don't even want to acknowledge it because it's not safe, right? It's not... It, it, it's, it's offensive to a lot of people. It puts us in a position where we're, we're on the defense. We don't even want to acknowledge that, but it's true. It's biblical. And we'll see in a minute for part of the reason why so many people don't want to acknowledge it. But here's what we see. Number one, God's judgment is real. God's judgment is real. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is revealed. God's wrath. So let's just, let's just what, are the, what, are the, what are the key terms here that we're going to see? Number one, the wrath. What is wrath? What is wrath? We'll look up in the dictionary. It's going to say something like extreme anger. Extreme anger. Can God be extremely angry at people? And the answer biblically is, is, is yes. The Greek word can be translated a few different ways. Wrath, as we see. Anger, retribution, punishment, revenge. That is the Greek word used here. And it says this, this anger, this, this judgment, this, this punishment is revealed, or is, it's a present tense, or is, is being revealed it is now demonstrated. It is now being demonstrated. And by the way, as we look at this, I, I, I think we need to, to make a little bit of a distinction and understanding this morning. We're not just talking about the future here. This is present tense. This is not just what's going to happen, right? It's not just hell that's out there coming someday. It is being revealed. Hell is the ultimate and final revelation of the wrath of God, but it isn't primarily what this passage is addressing this morning, as we'll see more in just a minute. Not just future, not just hell, it's the judgment of God is being revealed. Now, it is revealed. What is the judgment that's being addressed in this passage? Well, the rest of the passage we're going to look at this morning um, focuses on this judgment and why it comes. And honestly, so much of it is going to be unfolded over the next few weeks um, through the text, as we're not leaving this topic anytime soon. Over the next few weeks, we'll see more in-depth what this judgment is, 
But I'll just point to it this morning, okay? I just want to point to it so we kind of, you kind of see where it's going because it's, it's helpful to understand where, what it's talking about here, to understand where it, how it is he's going to apply it. So after saying there is judgment and then after talking about why there's that judgment that we're going to look at this morning, Paul gives three expressions of the judgment, okay? Paul in the text in, in chapter 1 is going to give three different expressions of the judgment, and they all include the phrase, they all begin with the phrase, God gave them up to. God gave them up to. Verse 24, therefore, after talking about the wrath of God being revealed and why it's being revealed, it says, therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their flesh to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then you come to the next session, verse, section, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then you come to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God gave them up. Therefore, for this reason... The wrath of God is revealed among the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up. We see in this passage the removal of what is often called restraining grace. Restraining grace. In other words, if God left us to ourselves, we are far more capable of depravity than we would ever like to think. It's, it is God saying, you hate the truth and you love your sin so much that I'm taking off the restraints and letting you absolutely destroy yourself in it. You love it. You want to pursue it. You want to hide the truth, suppress the truth, put the truth down in every way. So... All right, I'm going to let you. My judgment on you here is to let you wreck yourself in your sin. Who is the object of this judgment? It says against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It, it's, a, it's against ungodly people who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth of God. It's really clear in the text that it's not that they don't know it, or at least know enough of it, but they know it and they choose to express, uh, suppress and ignore it and pursue their own truth, which is not truth at all. Be very careful about the idea that you have your own truth. Your truth, my truth. There is truth. And here it says, it's suppressed. We suppress it. We, it's not that we don't know it. We know it. We know something about who God is there. And we say, no, we don't want it. We want to hide it. We want to put it down. We want to suppress it. We, the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. This is the person who says, no, I don't believe. And I don't even want, I, I'm just going to undermine. I'm going to undercut that truth. I'm going even further with it. It's not that they don't know it, but they choose to suppress and ignore it and pursue their own truth. And notice that not only do they not know the truth, they choose to pretend it's not true. 
It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, because of that sinful heart, suppress the truth. Why? That leads us to our second thing. God's revelation is actually pretty clear on some aspects that are key here. God's revelation is clear. Look at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they're without excuse. God's saying, listen, revelation here is clear. There is clear revelation. What are we talking about here? What are we talking about here? Does this mean that everybody has a great you know, a copy of their own Bible and a good sense of the gospel? No, it doesn't mean that. We're talking about natural revelation. We're talking about natural revelation because that's what he says, in the things that have been made. Ever since the creation of the world, from the beginning, in creation itself, there's a testimony about God. There's revelation about God in and through creation. In other words, creation testifies to, to, to who God is. And you say, well, how does it do that? What specifically are we talking about? Well, it tells us the two areas. He says his div- uh, eternal nature and divine, or his eternal power and his divine nature. Those are the two things that it specifically says are testified to in the creation of of the world his power and his divine nature i think we see this throughout scripture in at least three different ways three different ways we see it how is it that this revelation of god is clear so that we're when we suppress the truth of god we're without any excuse before him well we see verses like psalm 19 1 through 4 that talks about the scale and the grandeur of creation. The scale and the grandeur of creation and how it testifies of God. Listen to what it says. Psalm 119, 1-4. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You hear what that says? The heavens... And when he says heavens there, it's talking about you, you go out at night, you look up. What do you see? You see the heavens. It's talking about the sky, the sky, sky, the stars, everything you see there in creation. And it says, by the way, that is declaring something about God. And it is declaring his glory. It's revealing it. And it says day to day pours out speech. When we see God's incredible work in creation through the day, it is speaking to us. And it says, night to night reveals knowledge. When we look at those stars at night and we see the scale and the scope and the grandeur of what he's done, it is giving us knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, speaking of creation that we see there, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God is speaking to us through what He has made and declaring something about Himself. The heavens declare the glory of God. God reveals Himself in the immensity of what He has made. You ever wonder, why is it so big? 
why is, why is what we're beginning, every, we're constantly unfolding more and more knowledge and more and more understanding, and as we do, it's just more and more mind-blowing. Why is this so big? By the way, we don't know for sure actually how big the universe is, but NASA's going to tell you, we, we estimate it's 94 billion light years across. Our universe is 94 billion light years across. And just to put that in a little bit of perspective, even though we can't begin to put that in perspective, light travels at 186,000 miles a second. And that distance, 186,000 miles a second over a year times 94 billion. We can't compute. We can't even begin to compute. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's big. And when we do talk about... It, it's in a language and a scale that's impossible for us to wrap our head around it. The, the earth, by the way, is huge. I mean, for us, the earth is huge. But the earth is just a speck in the solar system. And our solar system doesn't even count as a speck in our galaxy, okay? And you can keep going from there. Our galaxy barely registers among the millions of other galaxies in the universe. And the Bible says, and he measures the heavens with a span. Isaiah 40, 12. Hebrew measurement of a span was this. Distance between the thumb and the finger of your outstretched hand. 94 billion light years plus. We don't even know. God says, yeah, it's about that big. Why did God create it like this? I think it's just to show us a glimpse of who he is. If God is creating a creation that's going to testify to who he is, then that creation and its scale and its grandeur is going to be absolutely mind-blowing. And the more we discover, see, here's the deal. The more and more we discover and the more and more we see and we get the Hubble Space Telescope and whatever other telescopes that they're putting out there and you see, these, you see this massive sky and it looks like stars everywhere and then they zoom in a little bit and you realize, no, those are actually all galaxies. And we see all that, and, and we should just sit back and say, wow, wow, how incredible is our God, how great is our God that we started singing this morning. He made it all out of a word. He spoke it into existence. How incredible, how amazing, how great is our God, but we don't. In fact, we, we back up and say, we're not even going to allow for that to be a possibility in the equation. We're not even going to allow for that to be brought into the conversation. How great is these natural, accidental processes that can make all this happen? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We see the grandeur and the scale of creation. We also see the order and complexity of creation. We need to move along. Not only is it so big, but it's incredibly complex at a level so small, our most powerful microscopes can't even begin to see it. 
It is so ordered and so complex that we, 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 we have all these ideas about what's going on and we, and we can prove those in some different ways, but we can't even begin to put our eyes on them. It's incredibly complex. And Adam is so small. Listen to this. I, I was just reading about this. It's mind-blowing. An Adam is so small that about five million of them can fit in a pinhead. Five million on a pinhead, that's an atom. And the nucleus of the atom is about 10,000 times smaller than the atom itself. I was reading this, and I just got to share it. If a grain of sand was the size of the earth, then an atom would be the size of a grain of sand. And not only is creation incredibly complex, even at the most infinitesimal, infinitesimally small level, it is perfectly ordered to promote and sustain life at every level. It's mind-blowing. It's incredible how even intricate things are and how perfectly they work together at such a small level from our incredibly balanced and sustained ecosystems that provide consistent and ongoing nourishment to life, to the very precise rotation of the earth and gravitational forces that are perfectly balanced, to the perfect orbit and placement of the, our planet in our solar system so that it provides a perfectly balanced, life-sustaining environment. You can go on and on and on. The testimony of God in creation is clear. We all see it. And we should say, Wow! Wow, God, you are incredible, but we don't. We see it and experience it and say, what God? We're not even going to allow for that to come into the conversation. What God? Finally, we see another way that God has revealed truth to us in creation, and that's even in ourselves. Call it the law written on our hearts, or that's what Romans chapter 2 says in verses 14 through 16. Listen to this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. What do they have then? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judged the secrets of men. They have a law written on their hearts. We do. It's the idea of, the, of a conscience. Of a conscience that God puts in us. An innate understanding. God has hardwired us with the basic sense of good and evil, right and wrong. And we still choose evil and wrong. Almost anywhere in the world that you can go, you can find people in remote tribes even that have laws and standards that govern them. Why? Don't kill somebody. Don't steal. Don't do those things. Why? Now, they get a little twisted in different ways, but we all have some of those basic ideas and standards. We inherently know certain things are wrong and certain things are right. I think 
we even know intrinsically that there is a God. That's why virtually every culture around the world has some form of religion, some conception of God. Doesn't matter how cut off or how remote they are, it's there. Why? Because it's, 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 there's a sense in which it's hardwired into us. But what do we do with this innate sense of right and wrong and of God's existence? Do we do what verse 21 says and honor Him and give thanks to Him? It's what we should do, but it's exactly what it says we don't do. It says, no, but instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Even having this innate sense of right and wrong, we choose wrong. Why? Why do we suppress the truth about God? Why do we do it? God has revealed so much. He's made basic things plain to us in natural revelation. Not a full picture of the gospel to save us. But even this truth about him that we reject to condemn us. That leads us to the next thing. What do we see about man? What do we see about man? And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Because focusing a lot on God, I think we don't have to spend quite as much time here because I think it becomes very obvious. What do we see about man? Well, we see we love our sin. Why do we suppress the truth? Because of unrighteousness. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We love our sin. Sin is this insatiable desire that we want more than anything else. We want it. We have to have it. We're going to get it for ourselves. Forget God. Forget what God says. We crave it. We desire it regardless of its destruction. It doesn't really matter. And because of that, because we love our sin, we reject accountability. We reject accountability. The truth runs counter to what we want. So what do we do? We get rid of the truth. I want this. I'm running after this. I desire this. This is what I really want. Forget what I know and can see and can understand and even know within myself is wrong. I want it and I'm going after it. So we love our sin, so we reject accountability. Forget that accountability. I'm going to find a way to suppress it, to hide it, to undermine it. I want freedom without restraint, so I refuse to accept any truth that makes me accountable. I don't believe because I don't want to believe, because if I believed, I would have to acknowledge my sin is wrong, and I don't want it to be wrong. I love it. I don't want to be accountable to anybody, and rejecting accountability naturally means that we reject God. 21 and 22, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Listen to what it says. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God. It's not that people don't know that there's a God. It's not. They love their sin. We don't want to be accountable to anything, so we are going to reject God. They just don't want there to be a God. Because they don't want to be accountable to God. They love their sin too much to turn loose of it. So they suppress the truth. 
But that alone is never enough either. We are innately created to worship. We're created to know God. We're created to worship God. He's putting certain elements in us that point us that direction. We're innately created to worship. And when we or they or suppress the truth of God, they always have to replace it with something else. It's not enough just that I'm just not going to worship because we're hardwired to worship. So I've got to trade that for something else. And so that leads to number four. We replace God. We replace God. Verse 23, speaking of this, says, and they exchanged the glory of God, glory of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We're created to worship, so everyone worships. Maybe they suppress the truth and make their own conception of God that serves their desires. Or maybe they follow a spiritual deception that leads them to a false conception of God. Or maybe they try to make themselves to be God in that sense. Or maybe they even think that they don't believe in God, so they make their God the planet or some other cause that they can run after in worship. But we're all worshipers. We replace God. We're talking about idolatry. Stacey's going to talk a whole lot more about that over the next couple of weeks. What's the result of all this? The results that, number one, we are confused. We're confused. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Our foolish hearts are darkened. We become futile in our thinking, it says. Both heart and mind, in suppressing the truth of God, we become futile or without purpose or without meaning there and foolish without clarity or direction. Number two, we're corrupt. We're confused. We are corrupt. I put in there verse 22. It actually should be 21. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Loving sin and suppressing God's truth exposes the full corruption of man. It is depravity on full display. And it is exactly where we go. We see in this, this passage like depravity. God has shown us everything we need to see to know at least that there is a God. And that he's got purpose and order and direction. And we say, I don't want him. I don't even want to know more about him. I want to pretend he doesn't exist. Because I want to do what I want to do. This is depravity 101. This is depravity on full display. And because of this depravity, number three, we are condemned. What does it say? Verse, the second part of verse 20. Yeah, they see all this, they know this, so they are without excuse. Nobody's going to get before God someday and say, hey, if, well, if you would have just told me more, shown me more, or explained more, then I would have believed. No, you wouldn't. If you reject God and suppress the truth in your love for sin and refuse to believe, then, then you're not. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, against them. Does this mean hell? Yes. But here, the point is that it means something else now as well. And so I want to close with the idea of the reality 
The reality is that the wrath of God is being revealed all around us. The wrath of God is being revealed. I don't think we're just talking about something future here. God gave them up to a depraved mind. God gave them up to dishonorable uh, passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. I look around and believe that this passage is being fulfilled in America and in many other places around the world today. We have come... We have come to a place of incredible moral insanity. And it's completely irrational. There's a moral insanity at a degree that you wonder, how in the world did we get here? How can can this even be celebrated? How can this be believed even? Things have gotten so insane that we don't even know what a man or a woman is anymore. I mean, we're talking about basic science, biology. We're talking about basic realities and truth. And it goes a lot crazier than that. Everyone is believed to have the ability to construct their own truth and their own reality. And nowhere do we see it more clearly than areas surrounding sexual desire and expression. As I read this passage and I look at what's going on around us, I don't think we're in danger of the judgment of God coming upon us. I think we're in the judgment of God now. God says, you suppress the truth. You want to find every way to to explain everything and to take me completely out of the equation? My wrath is revealed, and I'm going to let you destroy yourself and wreck yourself. I'm going to give you over to a debased mind. I'm going to give you over to dishonorable passions and let you wreck yourself in them. And boy, I hope and pray that the end result of that is ultimately a humbled people who call out to God. The wrath of God is being revealed And that in our society, He has given them up to the lust of their hearts, to a purity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. And He has gave them up to dishonorable passions. And God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so is there any hope? Is there any hope? We just sang about that desperation of how I need thee, oh, I need thee. We see unbelief taken to the full extreme level here but before we saw that there's a gospel that is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes believe believe is there hope here and the answer is yes believe the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes and you say I don't want to believe because I love my sin then you are under the judgment of God And you have no excuse. There's no excuse. Believe what He's done. Trust in Him. You don't make it right. You trust in Christ and what He has done. The righteous shall live by what? By faith. Believe in Him today. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your truth. Lord, thank You for just helping us to see so clearly, God, the The idea of your judgment and your wrath, 
that will come and that is here because we love our sin so much that we hate you as a people, as a culture, as a society. We hate you because we want what we want. If we put your truth down. But God, I pray for everybody in this room. Maybe that is somebody in this room. But God, I pray by your spirit, God, bring that power of conviction, God. Bring that weight of conviction of the reality of our sin, God. And open their eyes to this beautiful picture of the gospel of you who knew no sin, who became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. I pray you do incredible works of faith among us, Lord, and beyond us in this room. We pray that in the name of Jesus.